in Chicago, two comedian skeptics named Andy and Art were mysteriously abducted by the illusionary mastermind and conspiracy theorist known only as Mr. Mr. Bunker. Bunker. The following serves as a record of Bunker's attempt to convince non-believers of the truth about conspiracies and paranormal activity. Andy and Art give an uninterrupted presentation and verdict on the plausibility of these offbeat topics, delivering what they call the, the whole enchilada. Will Mr. Bunker convince these two skeptics any of this is real? Will it convince you? Welcome to Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time Podcast. As always, I'm your co-host, Art Stone, and with me, as always, is your co-host, Andy Hart. <laughs> hey, yo, Bunk Funkers! Welcome to Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time Podcast. Andy, we are taking off for a uh, journey that will be talked about uh, in the record books and the halls of history uh, forever. Yes. This is surely one that will go down in the annals of history <laughs> as a momentous occasion uh, for podcasting. It's one small step for us, one giant leap for human culture. Um, And we, we're always looking for the various annals of, of every domain that exists in we, uh, the world. We love to get lodged in the annals of all kinds of records. <laughs> uh, so if you feel like your annals need to have Andy and Art lodged in them, get at us. Let us know. Well, Andy, uh, if your ears mm. feel like they need to be uh, uh, lodged with the whole enchilada on today's topic, well, uh, you're in for a treat because that's what we're bringing to you. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Imagine uh, an entire enchilada, a whole enchilada stuffed into your ear canal. That's what you're going to get today. And um, specifically, we're covering the kidnapping of Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., the Lindbergh baby. That's right. Uh, Charles Lindbergh, famously a uh, U.S. Uh, aviator, uh, a real, uh, a real, a real character, and a real celebrity in his day. Yeah, and um, a somewhat famous historical figure today, uh, famous for making a nonstop uh, flight across the Atlantic. The first person to do that solo to do it solo. Uh, uh, first person to do it solo to do it Han Solo style. He did it. <laughs> Of course, with his giant uh, Wookiee companion. So he didn't do it solo. He did it Han Solo style. Right. And it was in a home-built replica of the Millennium Falcon. That's right. And uh, these are all true historical facts, and there will be a lot more like them. But first, before we talk uh, any more about this, we just want to say up front, if you want to take off yourself and fly nonstop across the Bunklantic ocean of that is the intro to this podcast <laughs> and arrives straight in the in 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 research land in Paris. 
Uh, you can do that by checking the show notes. Check the check the description. Check the show notes. There will be a timestamp that you can use to skip the intro and go straight to when the research begins so you don't have to listen to it. And you don't have to sit there and skip ahead. You can go straight to when the research starts. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. Engage your engines if you feel like it. So, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, Andy, this episode comes to us today from, well, some might say he's a bit of a Lindbergh baby himself. <laughs> yeah, they might. you say? Yeah. <laughs> it's our friend and also partly our nemesis, our arch nemesis, yeah, Ian Hamilton. Nemesis. Yeah, Ian, Ian Hamilton. Uh, um, famously uh, the lover of Natalie Sullivan. Uh you know, who both of whom have appeared, these two star-crossed lovers have appeared, uh, famously, they appear on our New Year's episodes. I guess that's going to become a thing. <laughs> We're going to yeah. conscript them. <laughs> right now, on the air. <laughs> Get ready, you two. <laughs> no, they came on for our New Year's episode on uh, um, the, the topic of if the Simpsons... Uh, writers or time travelers right and um so ian ian this 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 topic comes suggested from ian himself a former bunker mr bunker um a bunk a bunker guest appearance at, attendee that's right been in the bunker that's right in the actual bunker mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i mean you know it's interesting that Ian suggested a topic about a baby being kidnapped. I, I mean, I don't know. Is there a connection there? Yeah. I don't know. You know, I, I mean, why? I mean, you know, here's the thing. It's like Ian is just kind of coming out and saying like, hey, I really want you to do this topic on a baby being kidnapped. And it's like, I mean, has Ian ever come out publicly and said if he's for or against babies being kidnapped? I don't know. I mean, I can't answer that. You guys are going to have to ask Ian. Yeah, I mean, we don't know the answer to that question. And, I mean, frankly, knowing Ian personally, I I can't even hazard a guess. You know, Ian has never come out publicly and said whether he is for or against babies being kidnapped. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of questions being raised here, Bunk Funkers, and I think it's really important. The only two things that you need to be re- you need to remember, the only two words that I want you to take away from this conversation is the word Ian... And the word babies being kidnapped. Yeah, yeah. Those words. Remember those two words. Ian, number one. And the second word is babies being kidnapped. Like, I'm not coming out and just saying, like, is is Ian into babies being kidnapped? Does he like to kidnap babies? I don't know. We've never heard a statement. Yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah. It's, It's, you know, his personal feelings on this are ambiguous. That's right. So we, we need we need clarity. Um well, hopefully one day we get it, but um but first, you know, we need to talk about where in the world is Mr. Bunker. Yeah. Because every week Mr. Bunker in a way just like Lindbergh takes his own uh you know, journey. He goes on these crazy journeys and adventures and during quarantine during these COVID days, he's just been uh, fucking traveling all over the place, doing God knows what. Uh, hey, I have a I have a question for you, Art. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hit me with that question. Uh, just po- point of order: Are we going to 
uh, engage the bunk tech bunker alarm for Ian or uh, because, yeah. because he hasn't uh, publicly come out and denounced uh, child abduction. Uh, are we are we going to just well, I mean, it? well, here's the thing. It's like it's you know, we don't know what kind of child abductor Ian may or may not be. Right. <laughs> right. He might just be the kind that only kidnaps babies. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. So that's true. here's the thing. I don't want to color Ian's character in any way, shape, or form. But what I am saying is, is Ian Hamilton a baby kidnapper? I don't know. Right. Again, I don't want to color his the, his character or who he is or anything. But I'm just saying, he's never said to me, he's never said the words, I don't agree with baby kidnapping. I don't agree with baby kidnapping. I've said that. I've just said that right now yeah. publicly. Yeah. I don't I, agree with baby kidnapping. I don't agree with baby kidnapping either. And it would be nice if Ian... Would just say those words, um, but I've never heard him say those. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess I was thinking we'd like circle back around, but if you want to hit the bunker oh. alarm right now, we can fucking hit the bunker alarm. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't want to mess up the flow. No, I mean we can warm up the bunk tech bunker alarm right okay, now. Okay, okay. Um, uh, in case Let's you're warm up the bunker, uh, bunker alarm. In case you're not familiar, um, Art and I have in invested no money this is mr bunker's money but we've we've uh he invested a considerable sum in procuring for us a seamlessly synchronized bunk tech bunker alarm uh for us to sound for uh our bunk funkers who get after us on social media send in episode ideas uh who have been with us for a long time whatever the case might be uh we have this new technology that allows us to play for that bunk funker a perfectly synchronized uh, alarm sound. Uh, all it takes is just a little programming. I'm going to go ahead and yeah, pro- program the bunk tech bunker alarm right now. Go ahead, Andy. It's so scientific. I mean, it's it's really. I wish we could show you. It's a very um, I mean, it's a very, you know, it's uh, it's a solid piece of machinery. It really mm-hmm. is. What an intuitive UI. Yeah, and uh, you know, so all right, so uh, it's 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 ready to go. Um, so we'll just we'll sound the alarm. Uh, okay. Yes, in, this in, is going to be a perfectly synchronized uh, sound. I like to do a short countdown before sounding the alarm. Um, right just to make everyone aware that i'm going to sound the alarm Mm. Uh, so three two one yeah that's the alarm that's i mean it's incredible it's really a piece of technology it's 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 a thing of beauty uh Ancient humans could only have dreamed of technology like this. Yeah. Yes, sirree. Uh, but that was the bunker alarm. If you would like to get your own bunker alarm uh, sound, you know, you can um, you can uh, ask for it, honestly. You can just send an email and say, <laughs> I want a bunker alarm, and we'll figure something out. It's that easy. Or you can, um, you know, yeah, yeah, you can uh, message us. 
a bunch on social media. You can um, you could become a patron supporter on our Patreon, oh, yeah. patreon.com slash Mr. Bunker Pod, and we will sound uh, a bunker alarm for you. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, uh, I mean, we don't make it difficult. That's right. Well, anyway, Andy, um, we uh, as as we stated before, we got we we rerouted. We we made we made a little detour. We hit a little storm. Yeah. We're on our little plane, and we need to reroute, change course here because we need to talk about where in the world is Mister Bunker. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I mentioned, he's been having all of his crazy adventures here on quarantine, and um, well, every week I end up saying this week is no different, but this week might be different. Yeah, this week, um, this week feel this week is a bit different. Um, I got to be honest. Um, you know, we've uh, during quarantine we've been getting updates, routine updates from Mister Bunker. Uh, he's been traveling the globe in outer space. He's been doing everything. Oh yeah, having a great time. Um, this week, um, I don't want to say that it was sad. Would you say it was sad? Uh, I mean, I would describe it as cry for help, maybe levels, <laughs> or I don't know, like someone should check in. Right, right. Am um, I going to be the one to check in, though? Uh. Um, so, you know, this, uh, the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby, I mean, not to, not to spoil anything, but it takes, it was, the baby was kidnapped from a home in New Jersey. And Mr. Bunker sent us a a postcard and it's a picture of him and he's in front of a Jersey Mike's. It's not even, not even like an exotic location, Jersey Mike's. It's, it's one up the, you know, up the road from the bunker. He's just out in front. It's like, famously, there's a Jersey Mike's up the road from the bunker. You all know this. Uh, We've talked about it a lot. Um, but it's in a little strip mall, uh, and you know, Mister Bunker is is out front. Um, he looks haggard, uh, filthy. His shirt is stained. Um, I mean, you know, more than usual. I can't say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's, you know, he's got napkins all. Around him, he's got used napkins, like wadded napkins. Um, and he's just kind of like, he's got these dead, soulless eyes, and he's given two thumbs up to the camera. But you can tell that he's forcing it. Like, he doesn't really feel two thumbs up. Um, <laughs> and on the note that he wrote in the postcard, uh, he just basically said that he... Kind of just didn't feel like it. So <laughs> he was going to, he planned to go to New Jersey, but he didn't feel like it. So he just went to Jersey Mike's instead. He got a giant big kahuna cheesesteak. And then, you know, because of, cause of COVID, he couldn't eat inside. So he just ate it on the curb out in front of the restaurant. Yeah. And then he got full sitting in the sun and he fell asleep <laughs> on the sidewalk of the strip mall. And he's covered in beef juice, <laughs> cheesesteak juice. 
And that's oh, it. God. That's what he did this week. <laughs> wow. Um. Wow. You know, I guess it's just when you you have so many adventures, sometimes your vacation might be the mundane. Right. This is. Uh. But uh. You know. He could have taken uh, it home. Yeah, I guess. Um. I don't. I don't know why he would bother. I don't know why he he chooses to inform us this stuff. Like, just, he could have sent us any postcard. He could have just sent us a postcard from the bunker <laughs> and just been like, "Hey guys, wasn't feeling it this week." No, he like he still has to go through with it. Yeah, yeah. He <laughs> like, we're, or, are we his his therapist now that he's got to tell us that he he passed out in front of a Jersey Mike's? How many times has he passed out in front of a Jersey Mike's? You know. I mean, he did use the word again in the <laughs> postcard. So, I don't know. It just... God damn. I mean, it seems... Fucking passed out like a big lump of garbage. Like he's just a fucking... <laughs> like he's a damn speed bump. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty... Uh, yeah. It's not great. Not a good look. And why does he have to wad up the napkins? Why can't he fold them? Yeah. He could, or he could just like, you know, keep them together. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Mr. B. Kind of a you mess. need to pull it together, man. Well, yeah. speaking of another big mess, Andy, today's topic <laughs> is a bit of a big mess. Yeah, really. It um, is. Bunk Funkers, if you're into true crime... If you're into unsolved, well, uh, I guess I won't say unsolved mysteries, but maybe questionably maybe, solved mysteries. Yes, questionably solved mysteries, which was the uh, not as famous sequ- sequel to unsolved mysteries. Um, yeah. Just didn't have the same ring. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't <laughs> as popular. Um, and if you're into baby kidnapping, which I don't know, maybe some of our, you know. We don't know. Ian may or may not be into it, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if you feel like Ian and you're into baby kidnapping, this episode is for you. <laughs> oh boy, we're gonna get a cease and desist again. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's time. <laughs> um, yeah, if you're into all these things, I mean, this is a bit of a history mystery. This is a uh, true crimey. This is um, uh, it's it's kind of a yeah. It's it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a head scratcher. Yeah, I think you're gonna have a lot to chew on in this enchilada. Oh yeah. So uh, much like uh, the famous New Jersey Taylor Ham. So, um. <laughs> What is it? Is it a pork a pork, pork roll? roll? Or is it a, no? They also call it a Taylor ham, though. Certain parts of Jersey. Uh, well, let's see. Listen, bugfuckers, if you're from yeah Taylor, ham, New Jersey, right. yeah, okay. See, why do I doubt myself? I doubt myself, Andy. It's because the uh, anyway Taylor is the company that makes the pork roll. That's right. Um, so anyway, without further ado, 
Uh, let's let's get into it, Andy. We got to get into our little tiny our little tiny plane, and we're gonna fly over to the whole enchilada, Enchiladaville, Enchiladaville, USA. Population U, right here on Mister Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast. <laughs> Are we a medieval king? <laughs> yeah. Lindbergh was a king. Hey, Art! Do you remember the Simpsons episode, Burns, Baby Burns? Episode 4 from season 8? Oh, uh, that's the episode where uh, Mr. Burns, long lost son, Larry Burns, shows up in town and uh, he's voiced by Rodney Dangerfield, right? And um, that episode starts with the Simpson clan visiting the cider mill where Ned Flanders, you know, he shares with Homer the way to tell the difference between apple juice and apple cider. If it's clear and yellow, you've got juice there, fella. If it's thick and brown, well, you're in cider town. That episode, Andy? Yeah, Art, but you're missing the point, okay? In that episode, Larry and Mr. Burns have a falling out, and to regain Mr. Burns' affections, Homer helps Larry fake his own kidnapping. Ultimately, everything ends all right with everyone drinking mysterious booze and dancing to journeys any way you want it. But imagine if everything didn't end up okay. Hmm? Imagine if Larry was actually was actually kidnapped and died as a result of Homer's negligence in kidnapping him. And Homer, as the kidnapper, was executed for his crime. Imagine. Oh. I probably would have made the episode a lot less funny. But it would have made it a lot more like today's topic. The kidnapping of Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., a.k.a. Little Lindy, a.k.a. The Lindbergh Baby, a.k.a. The Eaglet. This kid was only alive for 20 months and already has at least three times more nicknames than me. Hey, Andy, you know, uh, in the Simpsons' eighth episode of season seven, Mm -hmm. titled uh, Mother Simpson, Mm -hmm. Grandpa Simpson tells the FBI that he's the Lindbergh Baby as a cover for Mona's escape. That's right, Art. Good pull. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is you did a good reference, but it was maybe getting the cart before the horse. You know, a little from column A and a little from column B. Look, we're about to ascend our home-built ladder to sneak the whole enchilada out of the oven. But first we need to set the table, heat some towels, light some candles. Just because we're having whole enchilada again doesn't mean we can't make it special. We have to keep the romance alive, bunk funkers. But speaking of being alive, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. officially became alive through a process generally known as being born on June 22nd, 1930. Now, Andy, that's your birthday as well, right? That's not just my birthday. It's my birth date. <laughs> Little Lindy and I were born the exact same day. <laughs> what a coincidence! What a shame. Why couldn't it have been you instead of little Lindy? <laughs> hey, who are you? You sound like my parents. 
and my extended family and anyone who's ever spent an amount of time with me. <laughs> it is unbearable. Uh, Anywho. Mm. The Lindbergh baby was the product of the Lindbergh parents, Charles and Anne Morrow Lindbergh. Now, bunk funkers, if you're not familiar with Charles Lindbergh Sr., a.k.a. Big Lindy, a.k.a. Lucky Lindy, he was a famous aviator whose biggest success at the time of Little Lindy's birth was being the first person to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. Little Lindy was Charles and Anne's first child. And for the first year and a half, everything went great. But then, on March 1st, 1932, sometime between 9 and 10 p.m., Charles Jr. disappeared from his nursery on the second floor of the Lindbergh home in Hopewell, New Jersey. The first person to discover the child was missing was his nurse, Betty Gow. Lucky Lindy put some grease in his garter as soon as he got the news from Betty Gow. He and the family's butler, Ollie Whiteley, made a quick search of the property and found some pieces of potential evidence. There were marks in the ground, possibly footprints, under the window of the nursery. They found pieces of a wooden ladder, they found a baby blanket, and most importantly, they found a ransom note. The note was sloppily handwritten with poor spelling and grammar and demanded $50,000 for the safe return of the baby, an amount that would equal almost $1 million today. The note requested that the ransom money be split among different denominations of bills, $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. The note promised that a drop location for the ransom money would be revealed in a note to be delivered to Charles Sr. in two to four days. The note also gave a warning about going to authorities or making any information related to the kidnapping public. The writer of the note also promised that future notes would have the same signature found on this note. Now, to be fair, this is pretty challenging to describe verbally, I think. So uh, if it doesn't make sense, check the show notes. Uh, you can find uh, pictures in there uh, and more clear uh, like drawings of what the signature looked like. So the signature uh, was two blue circles arranged so that they partially overlap in the center, uh, like a Venn diagram. In the area where the blue circles overlap, there was a red circle. A hole was punched in the center of the red circle, and there were two additional holes punched, one each to the outside of the blue circles. In the non-overlapping area of the blue circles, two squiggly lines were drawn in each area. So despite the warning, the Lindberghs quickly engaged the authorities and the Hopewell, New Jersey police came to investigate, as did the New Jersey State Police. The police investigation found the following clues. A chisel. A wooden ladder, which was found earlier, was uh, now determined to be two separate sections. The ladder was split or broken where the two sections joined, and uh, investigators believe the ladder was broken either on the ascent to the nursery or on the way down. And three, traces of mud inside the baby's nursery. The investigation was also notable for what the police did not find. Uh, one was no usable fingerprints were found on the ransom note or the latter. Investigators also did not find usable footprints either in the nursery or on the ground. This led investigators to believe that the kidnapper or 
kidnappers wore gloves and some kind of cloth on the soles of their shoes. Two, the investigators did not find any bloodstains in or near the nursery. And three, uh, this is uh, interestingly, the police did not find any adult fingerprints in the baby's nursery at all, even in places where witnesses admitted touching. The police did find little Lindy's fingerprints in the nursery. So even after digging in, police didn't have a lot of evidence to help identify a suspect in the baby's disappearance. To help bring the case to a conclusion, the state of New Jersey offered a $25,000 reward for little Lindy's safe return, and the Lindbergh family offered an additional $50,000 reward. That's $75,000 in reward money in 1932, and it's equivalent to almost $1.5 million today. That's a little more dough than a slinging on cake bus. Cake bus. That's right. Then on March 6th, 1932, Big Lindy, uh, who we might also refer to as Colonel Lindbergh since he was a colonel in the U.S. Army Air Corps Reserves at the time. Again, uh, these are people with numerous nicknames, a lot of nicknames in this family. Uh, on March 6th, Colonel Lindbergh received a second ransom note. The letter was postmarked in Brooklyn in New York City on March 4th. This note increased the demanded ransom money to $70,000. At this point, New Jersey's governor initiated a police conference in Trenton, New Jersey, to discuss how to handle the case. Meanwhile, some of Colonel Lindbergh's colonel buddies got involved to help find little Lindy's kidnapper. There was Lindbergh's attorney, Henry Skillman Breckenridge. Uh, There was William J. Wild Bill Donovan, who ran the U.S. Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, during World War II. The OSS was an intelligence service and the forerunner to the USA's Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA. Uh, In fact, Wild Bill has a statue in the lobby of CIA headquarters today. Lastly, but certainly not least, there was Norman Schwarzkopf Sr., the superintendent of the New Jersey State Police. Uh, The historical record is unclear if Colonel Harlan Sanders arrived to help. Uh, We're looking into that more. Schwarzkopf was in charge of the official police investigation while Breckenridge and Donovan operated outside of official police authority. Uh, It was hypothesized that the kidnapping was an organized crime scheme. So naturally, mafia contacts were engaged to help find the baby. Some jailed mobsters, including no less than Al Capone himself, offered help in exchange for different favors. Law enforcement declined these offers. Breckenridge also enlisted the help of private investigators. There were a lot of people involved in this case. On March 8th, 1932, a third ransom note was received. This one delivered to Breckenridge. This note said that a person selected by the Lindberghs to be their representative in dealings with the supposed kidnapper or kidnappers would not be accepted. Also on March 8th, 1932, Dr. John F. Condon, a retired educator from the Bronx in New York City, published a letter in the Bronx Home News offering his services as an intermediary and offered an additional $1,000 of his own money for the ransom. The next day, March 9th, Condon got a reply from the kidnapper, or kidnappers, saying they were okay with Condon being the intermediary. 
Colonel Lindbergh agreed, and Condon was given $70,000 in cash as ransom money. Condon then began negotiating with the kidnapper, or Urs, on how to deliver the ransom payment. All of these negotiations were via newspapers. Condon used the codename Jaffsey, which was a phonetic pronunciation of his initials, J-F-C. On March 12th, Jaffsey got a note hand-delivered by a taxi driver who said he got the note from an unknown person. The note directed Jaffsey to another note underneath a stone near a subway station by an abandoned hot dog stand. That note led Jaffsey to meet a man who called himself, quote-unquote, John, at a cemetery in New York City. Charles Lindbergh came along but stayed hidden in the car. The police did not accompany the men. The mysterious John agreed to provide proof of Little Lindy's identity, which was received in the mail by Jaffsey on March 16th. The proof was a baby's sleeping suit, which the Lindberghs confirmed was Little Lindy's. After some more back and forth with Jaffsey placing ads in the papers and the kidnappers, or kidnapper, replying via letter, Jaffsey got a letter on April 1st telling him to have the money ready the next night. On April 2nd, Jaffsey got another hand-delivered letter dropped off by a taxi driver who said he got the note from an unknown person. Is this starting to sound familiar? That note directed Jaffsey to another note under a stone in front of a greenhouse in the Bronx. This kidnapper, or these kidnappers, sure do love scavenger hunts. (laughs) Is it possible that the kidnapping was just some big Lindbergh scavenger hunt? Uh, that might be true. More on that in a bit. (laughs) (laughs) That same night, again, April 2nd, Jaffsey followed the instructions in the greenhouse note and met who he believed was this mysterious John. Once again, Lucky Lindy was in the car and the police did not join the men. Jaffsey delivered $50,000 in ransom and got a note in return, which said that little Lindy was being held safe and sound on a boat called Nellie off the coast of Massachusetts. A search was made for this boat, but it was never found. The ransom money Jaffsey gave to John was in a custom-made wooden box. The idea was that if the box was found later, it could be easily identified. The ransom money itself consisted of mostly gold certificates, which is basically like paper money today, except it entitles the holder to the amount of gold corresponding to the value printed on the note, if redeemed. The certificates in the ransom uh, were due to go out of circulation. Uh, The United States stopped allowing redemption for real gold in 1933, and all of the serial numbers of the certificates in the ransom money were recorded. All this was in the hopes that the ransom money would be spent and the serial numbers could be traced back to the spender. Now, following the ransom payment on April 2nd, there was a quiet period. Police didn't have a lot of leads in the case and no new information was forthcoming. On May 12th, truck driver William Allen, uh, well, I mean, technically he was riding in a truck which was driven by Orville Wilson. Uh, Either way, the truck stopped for a roadside pee break and William Allen discovered the decomposed, partially buried body of a child in some trees near Mount Rose, New Jersey, not far from the Lindbergh home in Hopewell. The body was identified as the body of Charles Lindbergh Jr. The child's head was crushed 
and there was a hole in the skull. The coroner estimated the child had been dead for two months and determined that the death was caused by head trauma. The body was cremated and the ashes scattered in the Atlantic Ocean. After discovery of the body, investigators began to think that the kidnapping was carried out by someone who knew the Lindberghs. Attention turned towards one of the Lindbergh's household servants, Violet Sharp. Sharp gave conflicting accounts of her whereabouts the night of Little Lindy's disappearance and, according to police, seemed suspicious when questioned. Sharp committed suicide on June 10th, just before she was set to be questioned by police for the fourth time. Eventually, her alibi was confirmed. Jaffsey was also questioned by police and had his home searched. Despite this investigative work, uh, the case went cold again. Investigators decided to focus back on the ransom money, since it was believed that the gold certificates offered the best opportunity to track down the kidnapper or ers. On May 2nd, 1933, so this is nearly a year after Little Indy's body was discovered, 296 of the ransom gold certificates were discovered by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York all received by the bank in one deposit. One of the bills had a name and address written on it, but the depositor of the certificates could not be identified. Investigators tried to develop a profile of the supposed suspect. Through analysis of the ransom notes, it was suspected that all the notes were written by the same person who was likely a German, but had spent some time in the USA. Examination of the latter found at the scene suggested that the suspect was familiar with woodworking. The wood used in the latter was studied in depth to determine if any connections could be made, even tracing some of the wood used in the latter to its origin, which turned out to be supposedly from a lumber yard in the Bronx. While the investigation continued, gold certificates continued to be spent in New York City mostly along the Lexington Avenue subway route in Harlem and in Yorkville, which was heavily populated by German immigrants at the time. Then, on September 18, 1934, a bank teller recognized one of the serial numbers on a gold certificate deposited by a gas station in New York City. There was a license plate number written on the bill, written by the gas station manager, who said the person who paid with this bill was suspicious and possibly a counterfeiter. The license plate led police to Bruno Richard Hopman, a resident of the Bronx, a German immigrant with a criminal record in Germany, and a carpenter who was employed at the very same Bronx lumberyard where the lumber for the latter was obtained. <laughs> He's really checking off a lot of boxes here. Hopman was surveilled and arrested on September 19th. Police found one of the ransom gold certificates on his person at the time of, the, of his arrest. Hopman was interrogated by police and, to be fair, the police did beat him during the interrogation. Nevertheless, Hopman admitted to making purchases with notes from the ransom money. Hopman was also identified as the unknown person who delivered a ransom note to one of the taxi drivers who delivered, in turn, that note to Jaffsey. The next day, September 20th, police searched Hopman's home and found over $13,000 in ransom money in his garage. Hopman claimed that the money had been given to him for safekeeping by his friend, Isidore Fish. Fish had gone back to Germany and, di and died in early 1934. 
Hopman figured he might as well keep the money because Fish owed him some money from a business deal anyway. Hopman claimed he had no connection to Little Lindy's abduction or death and did not know that gold certificates were part of the ransom money. Back at Hopman's home, police found additional evidence implicating him in the crime. Written on a wall in the closet, police found Jaffsey's phone number and address. Police also found a notebook with a sketch of construction plans for a ladder similar to the one found at the Lindbergh residence the night of the kidnapping. A section of the ladder was determined to be an exact match to a missing floorboard in the attic of Hopman's home. The chisel found at the scene matched a set of tools at Hopman's home as well. Now, aside from this evidence, police also determined that Hopman's car matched the description of a car seen near the Lindbergh home the day of the kidnapping. Samples of Hopman's handwriting were compared against the ransom notes, and FBI experts determined the samples were a match to the ransom notes. Additionally, police determined that Hopman quit his job not long after the kidnapping and had not been employed since. Despite no employment, police found that Hopman had been trading extensively in the stock market during the Great Depression. Well, he may not have been a Wall Street maven, but Hopman did get his day in court. He was indicted in September 1934 in the Bronx on charges of extortion related to his receipt of the ransom money. A couple of weeks later, he was indicted in New Jersey for the murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr., and his trial began in January 1935 in New Jersey. And boy, was it a media circus. It was being called the trial of the century. The prosecution's case was based entirely on circumstantial evidence because, well, there was no physical evidence or eyewitnesses placing Hopman at the scene of the crime or actually receiving the ransom money. Now, despite that, the prosecution produced a lineup of expert witnesses who produced damning testimony. There were eight handwriting experts alone who testified to the similarities between Hopman's writing samples and the ransom notes. The prosecution also produced witnesses who identified Hopman as the spender of some of the ransom money and other witnesses who claimed to have seen Hopman near Hopewell, New Jersey on the day of the kidnapping. Charles Lindbergh himself took the stand and testified that Hopman's voice was that of the mysterious quote-unquote John who met with Jaffsey. Meanwhile, Hopman's defense, which was uh, really pushing the Isidore Fish angle, lined up experts who either declined to testify, demanded payment to testify, which was declined, or were never called to the stand. One witness who did take the stand was none other than Bruno Richard Hopman. During the trial, Hopman testified the ladder sketch found at his home was done by a child. Hopman explained that Condon's phone number and address were written in the closet because Hopman had... Uh, had must have read the address in the paper while he was in the closet and just wrote it down to have a record. He <laughs> he could not explain. It just was hanging out in the closet. As you do. As you do. As you do. <laughs> he could not explain how he obtained Condon's phone number. Hopman again repeated the fish story, which was corroborated by his wife, Anna, only for some inconsistencies to be found on cross-examination. The prosecution worked to put holes in the Fish story by calling witnesses who said Fish couldn't have been at the Lindbergh residence on the day of the kidnapping. 
Witnesses also said Fish died of tuberculosis, an illness he could not treat because he had no money. The prosecution also called Fish's landlord, who said he almost couldn't afford the $3.50 per week in rent. In the end, the jury was convinced that Haltman was guilty. The court sentenced him to die for these crimes. Though Haltman appealed multiple times and continued to claim his innocence, he was executed on April 3, 1936, even turning down an offer to commute his sentence to life imprisonment if he would confess. Even after his death, Anna Haltman continued to claim her husband's innocence and worked to clear his name. And she's not the only one. In the years since Haltman's execution, many have taken issue with the investigation into the kidnapping, the trial itself, even questioning if Haltman was guilty at all. So let's take a look, shall we? Let's start with a little bit of context. At this time, Charles Lindbergh was maybe the most famous man in the USA. Whatever it was about his uh, solo flight across the Atlantic, it captured the imagination of the nation. He became a massive celebrity overnight and was still wildly popular at the time of the kidnapping. Lindbergh's considerable fame and influence led him to direct the investigation much more than most people in a similar position would. When police began to investigate the Lindbergh home, they found that lots of people had already been around the house, destroying or otherwise muddying evidence. Superintendent Schwarzkopf gets credit from some folks for doing generally a good job investigating the kidnapping. Uh, Folks like former FBI agent and professor Jim Fisher, who praises the work Schwarzkopf did, but believes that the police were hamstrung by Lindy's control over the investigation, which was allowed to supersede even Schwarzkopf's authority. Fisher believes that if Schwarzkopf had been in charge instead of Lindy, Bruno Richard Altman would have been a, would have been apprehended during one of the meetings with Jaffe, giving the case a much-needed boost in evidence. Others suggest that Schwarzkopf and team didn't really do that great of a job. The suicide of Violet Sharp is often attributed to intimidating police tactics, and the police have rightly been criticized for their approach in questioning of Violet Sharp. Aside from this, Plenty of people take issue with the information presented by the prosecution during Haltman's trial. Haltman's attorney even brought up during the trial that he believed Jaffe's address and phone number were written in Haltman's closet by the police after the arrest. There are other claims of evidence tampering in this case, including the ladder. We mentioned earlier that there were no fingerprints found on the ladder. In the book, The Case That Never Dies, The Lindbergh Kidnapping, Lloyd Gardner brings up the account of Dr. Erastus Mead Hudson who was a fingerprint expert called in by New Jersey to find prints that regular police techniques did not uncover. Utilizing a relatively new technique not in use by the police in New Jersey, Hudson was able to uh, find prints all over the ladder. After Hotman's arrest, Hudson claims he called the police to ask about the situation. Hudson says he was told by police that they got the suspect, even though none of Hotman's prints matched those on the ladder. To make matters worse, After determining that Hotman's prints weren't on the ladder, the ladder was washed completely of all prints. Additionally, folks like author Ludovic Kennedy believe the rung from the ladder that matched the missing board in Hotman's attic was planted by police. Aside from these, there's also the issue of Hotman's time cards from his job. Some people believe there are ink smudges on the time cards indicating they were modified. Some say that Hotman was at work the day of the kidnapping and so couldn't have possibly been in the vicinity of the Lindbergh home. 
There are also claims that police ignored the testimony of Haltman's co-workers who placed him on the job the day of the kidnapping. Additionally, some question how Haltman would have even known that the Lindberghs would be in their would be at their home in Hopewell the day of the kidnapping. At the time little Lindy was kidnapped, the Hopewell estate was still partially under construction. The Lindberghs typically spent only the weekends there and during the week were in their home in Englewood, New Jersey. The Lindberghs only decided to stay in Hopewell on Sunday night because little Lindy wasn't feeling well. All right, so there's some inconsistencies here, but if notorious BRH didn't commit this crime, who done it? Well, there's a lot of ideas, frankly, and uh, maybe the one that's closest to the quote-unquote official version of the events is that, well, yes, Hotman was involved, but he had help. Um, now, that's not to say that Hotman was the ringleader, just that there might have been more than one person in- involved. These ideas are based on Charles Lindbergh's statement to the police after the mysterious quote-unquote John meeting in the cemetery that John had a lookout. Was Hotman just a member of a gang of German criminals? Well, the book Cemetery John argues that Hotman was part of a three-person team of German immigrants that kidnapped the baby. The book's author, Robert Zorn, says that his father claimed that he overheard neighbors conspiring to kidnap little Lindy. His neighbor's name just happened to be John, John Knoll. As evidence, Zorn put forth that Condon didn't initially believe Hotman was the man he met in the cemetery, but Condon later agreed that Hotman was the, mis- the mystery man. Zorn believes that Condon actually met John Knoll in the cemetery. Allegedly, the ransom notes were postmarked from the area in New York City where the Knolls lived, not Hotman. Additionally, Zorn points out that Hotman was found to have about $15,000 of the ransom money, roughly one-third of the total ransom purse. So did John Knoll and his brother get the other two-thirds? Well, Maybe. According to Zorn, John Knoll could inexplicably afford to send his family on an expensive boat trip to Germany not long after the kidnapping. Knoll and family were in Germany until after Hotman had been convicted. Maybe Knoll used his portion of the ransom to flee the country in the event that the plot came out in the trial. But Jim Fisher says that if you tally up the amount of ransom money Hotman had on hand when arrested, had spent around New York City and the amount he put into the stock market, it adds up to the entire ransom amount. So if Fisher's math is correct, Hotman wouldn't have been uh, able to pay out to any co-conspirators. Along the same lines, there's also speculation that maybe Isidore Fish really was responsible for the kidnapping slash murder of Little Lindy. Prosecution had people testify that Fish was poor, but the witnesses who claimed that he couldn't afford medication were from Germany. So Fish might have died poor in Germany while living the good life here in the USA. The book Murder of Justice, New Jersey's Greatest Shame, which, frankly, has to be tough competition, am I right? Determining New Jersey's greatest shame. I mean, I wouldn't want to be a judge for that one, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Anyway, the book suggests that the Lindbergh butler, Oliver Watley, helped Fish pull off the kidnapping. This leads naturally to the next type of theory about the kidnapping, that baby Lindy's body 
was actually never found. The book Beneath the Winter Sycamores puts forth the hypothesis that little Lindy was shipped off to live with another family and that the whole kidnapping was a hoax and Hotman was a scapegoat. According to Lloyd Gardner, Charles Lindbergh was a believer in social Darwinism. That means survival of the fittest. It's also worth mentioning, too, that Lindy was a white supremacist, possibly an anti-Semite, and was a Nazi apologist. So, it's probably no surprise that he was into eugenics, you know, and spreading his good genes, and uh, even going so far as carrying on multiple affairs and fathering multiple children out of wedlock with German women. Just Just a mention. Now, there's some evidence that little Lindy had a condition similar to rickets, also an enlarged cranium, unfused skull bones, and hammer toes on one foot. Some have suggested that the kidnapping was a cover so that baby Lindy could be shipped to a foreign country to be raised in anonymity so that his father wouldn't have to deal with what our fathers had to deal with, raising genetically inferior sons. (laughs) If only somebody could have spared our dads that problem. With Lindy's control over the investigation established, he would, have been, he would have been able to deflect scrutiny from himself. Gardner also points out that on the night of the kidnapping, Big Lindy was supposed to give a speech in Manhattan. Lindy blew off the engagement and went home, saying he forgot about it. Or in New Jersey, forget about it. Which was not in character for him. Is it possible that Charles Lindbergh needed to be home that night so that he could orchestrate the disappearance of his firstborn child. Now, obviously, if if this is the case, that means little Lindy's body wasn't found. But he did die, right? Well, maybe not. The body that was discovered was badly decomposed, and animals had eaten away some flesh even. A positive identification would have been difficult. The body was also cremated the day after it was discovered, with only a quick autopsy performed. Maybe Lindy was trying to hide the truth by quickly disposing of the evidence. In the years since Hotman's execution, numerous people have come forward claiming to be the Lindbergh baby. While we're on the subject of Charles Lindbergh's involvement, there are also claims that maybe he was trying to pull a sick prank on his wife by fake kidnapping his baby... Uh, But then he dropped the baby on a ladder and the baby died, so he hid the body hastily and invented the kidnapping myth. Now look, while we here at Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time do love nothing more than a good prank, that one goes too far even for us. It's not Hardian. Believers claim that Lindy had a sadistic sense of humor and loved cruel jokes. They even allege he put his baby in a closet and told his wife he had told his wife the baby had been kidnapped only two weeks before the real kidnapping. I mean, it's like, okay, you did the kidnapping thing once. Maybe try something new. Yeah, it's like maybe he should have tried to cover the baby in barbershop hair and then, you know, like tell his wife a Ursamancer turned the baby into a bear. Like that would be a fucking sick, sick prank. prank. That's a good one. Yeah. But he just keeps doing this. He just keeps doing the same hacky kidnapping bit over and over again. It's like, dude, it's not that funny. Nobody likes it. But hey, anyway, what about a non-Charles Lindbergh hypothesis? 
In Noel Ben's book, Lindbergh, The Crime, it's hypothesized that Anne Morrill Lindbergh's sister killed little Lindy in a jealous rage. Now, allegedly, Charles was initially interested in Anne's sister, Elizabeth, but eventually married Anne. Interestingly, Elizabeth supposedly had heart disease, an undesirable trait for old eugenics Lindbergh. Yay! Yet another nickname for him. According to Ben, the family knew Elizabeth committed the crime, but covered it up with the kidnapping to avoid scandal. They then institutionalized Elizabeth for good measure. But let's not forget about John Condon. Condon is a fairly controversial figure in the case. An assessment of the aftermath suggests that most people don't think Condon was on the level, at least not completely. Aside from some of the inconsistencies in his story, which we've already brought up, police sure felt like Condon was up to something and didn't trust him. Uh, he really only was allowed to be involved because lucky <laughs> lucky Lindy said it was okay. As we mentioned, the kidnapper or kidnappers allegedly set Condon clothing little Lindy was wearing, which was confirmed to be the baby's sleeping suit. But uh, was it really? The suit was just the same brand. <laughs> and that's not a lot of evidence to suggest that Anyone did any further testing other than looking at it and saying, yeah, that's the same thing the baby sleeps in. After the ransom money was delivered to the mysterious John, Condon's behavior also became more flamboyant with respect to the case as he vowed to stay involved and help track down the perpetrators. Remember, when dropping off the ransom money, only Condon and Charles Lindbergh traveled to meet the mysterious John. Is it possible that Jaffsey conspired with Lindy to help cover up whatever happened to Charles Jr.? Is it possible that Jaffsey helped to implicate Hopman in the crime because he was afraid police would reveal unsavory details about his own past? And what about the mafia? We already mentioned that they were suspected by law enforcement, and it kind of makes sense. Jaffsey told a story once about having a phone call with the mysterious John and hearing people in the background, people with Italian accents. Uh-oh. Oh, boy. I should get going. Frankly, a crime like this was right up the mafia's alley. This was the Great Depression area. Money was hard to come by, and one way to make a quick buck was to steal the child of someone rich and extort ransom money. And if there's anything the mafia loves, it's making a quick buck illegally, baby. Plenty of famous people would just pay the ransom money quietly for the safe return of their child and to avoid a scandal. Obviously, the Lindberghs didn't choose to pay their ransom quietly. And the noise from this case has echoed through the generations, creating skepticism even today. At this point, so many years removed from the event, we may never truly get to the bottom of this mystery. Despite that, one thing we know we can get to the bottom of is a plate of whole enchiladas. Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast will be right back after this brief message.
Bunk Funkers. This is Andy, and I'm here with my co-host, your co-host, Art. Uh, and we're coming at you today to let you know that we launched a Patreon. Uh, so if you have the means and you want to support the show, come visit us at patreon.com slash Pod and consider becoming a subscriber. Get an extra podcast episode every month of our brand new show, Andy and Art Debunked, available only on Patreon. We're going to be covering uh, various urban legends and myths. We'll do TV and movie commentary tracks and reviews. We'll do pop culture conspiracies and much, much more. Becoming a subscriber will also get you access to our Discord channel, where you can chat with me and Art and other bunk funkers from around the globe. You also get plenty of behind-the-scenes content and much, much more. So, please, help us support the show and keep the lights on in the bunker. Visit us at patreon.com slash MrBunkerPod and become a subscriber today. Hey, welcome back, listeners. That was our research of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Boy. And, uh, yeah. Hopefully we didn't... Kidnap your hearts. Yeah. Uh, I mean, hopefully your faith in the justice system hasn't been kidnapped. Yeah, the 1930s justice system. The well-oiled machine that was the 1930s New Jersey justice system. A few things, Andy. I think there's there's two big things that I want to say up to. Okay, okay. Go ahead. The first one is we talked about this mysterious John, this... and there's uh, there's essentially he's a cemetery, John. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't that the name of your failed invention for a series of graveyard toilets? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's true. Um, you probably see, saw my infomercials back in the 80s uh, where it was designed really to be a portable toilet that you could use at funerals, uh, graveside uh. services that were taking too long. Um, uh-huh. Because we've all been there where we get diarrhea in the middle of uh, a graveside service for a loved one. And it's so rude to shit your pants. And it's so rude to penguin waddle off while grabbing your ass and going behind a bush in the cemetery and just shitting out loud as loud and wet as you can. And it's even more rude to... Uh, waddle over and shit into the grave. Yeah, which which is I mean, which is what gave you the idea. Well, you know, it's interesting too because when they dig a grave, um, you know the the casket actually, you know, doesn't it gets sealed in a vault, um, you know, rather than being just dropped into a hole in the ground. So if you if you're there at the right time and they're digging a grave you can shit into the hole and then they're going to put the vault in anyway so i mean no harm no foul as far as i'm concerned yeah uh, i mean just another one of the long line of businesses that you've tried to invent andy that have just uh, unfortunately just not captured i mean what can i say you're uh you know, maybe you need to become a crack addict and do uh, cocaine for a long time, like the My Pillow guy, and then people will—that's uh, true—will listen to you. <laughs> I could become reformed and then always do commercials on TV with a little too much chest hair showing, but you could also see my necklace. Um, you know, the 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 cemetery John portable toilet system was designed to look like a wreath that you would put on a grave, um, and that's like. <laughs> converts into a seat 
Uh, and then yeah. there's uh, a little sack that collects your diarrhea poo and you can just toss it. Uh, you know, it, it's got like a little liner. You can just toss uh, it away. It's biodegradable. Um, I have a whole bunch in storage, lots of inventory. wasn't very popular. Uh, so if you think you want a, a Cemetery John, uh, you know, just let us know and uh, I'll, I'll ship you one. Um, you know, funny enough, a few years after Cemetery John went belly up, I also was featured in the news as the Cemetery John uh, yeah. because I kept... I kept uh, yeah. trying to solicit uh-huh. sex from people at funerals. <laughs> you saw Wedding Crashers, and you thought that Will Ferrell's character was really cool, so you started... Uh, Look, I still trying think to that solicit- character is really cool. You're so I started, right. I started going to funerals and offering money for people to have sex with me. <laughs> so I ended up in the paper as the Cemetery John. Wow. I don't think they knew about the Cemetery John portable toilet system. Yeah, I think that would have made for a very clever uh, headline. Yeah. Cemetery John, Cemetery John. (laughs) (laughs) The man's so fucked up, they named him twice. (laughs) Cemetery John, Cemetery John. (laughs) Uh, Andy, the other big thing uh, I want to mention is I have a confession to make. Oh. Yeah, go uh, ahead. I am the Lindbergh baby. <laughs> oh, I knew it. I kidnapped myself. I knew it. That is why uh, Jaffsy and Lindbergh heard a bunch of Italian voices. It was me. Mm. As bunkfuckers know, they've been longtime listeners know, I have a thick Italian accent. <laughs> I mean, you're hearing I mean, it right now. You're hearing it now. Uh, we get a lot of messages about it. Art's thick Italian accent, like... You know, a lot of people like to send in memes about Art's thick Italian accent. You know, they send me things like Mario from the the Mario games. And they send me things, you know, uh, like Tony Sopranos and others. Joe and Pesci's. I just, Joe Pesci's, I have just have this thick Italian accent. And what can I say? I'm the Lindbergh baby. I kidnapped myself to get away from my crazy, um, Nazi sympathizing dad, <laughs> you know, I couldn't deal with it. He wanted me to be an aviator. And the only thing I want to do with aviation is wear aviator sunglasses. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you look good in them. Well, thank you. And uh, that's because they cover up um, a lot of my face because they're so big. And that's why I look good because they yeah. cover more of my natural features, making it a flat mirrored <laughs> exterior. Right. Um <laughs> I wanted, you know, of course, to be a dancer and right. I wanted to go join the ballet. But, um, you know, big, big, big daddy Lindy wasn't having any of that. So I kidnapped myself. I mean, thank you uh, for that confession. Um, case you know, closed. Yeah. case. I guess we're done here. Um, <laughs> I wrapped up much earlier than usual. Uh, yeah, so it was well, pretty quick. It out pretty efficient we solved it um thank you for that confession um you know tell us what you think bunk funkers <laughs> <laughs> use the hashtag uh i am the Lindbergh baby i am the Lindbergh see baby. you next week <laughs> <laughs> uh boy andy this one uh 
I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's fair. I'm, there's one thing I'm confused about. Okay. And maybe we should get right, right, in, get right into it. Yeah. Unless you maybe want to talk about Charles Lindbergh first. But we can get into this because I'm a little confused. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear what you're confused about. So, if Hopman was on the job and his coworkers allegedly had an alibi for him and he did as well, mm-hmm. why didn't his defense attorneys contact his work or bring his coworkers in to testify or find some kind of evidence. Like I know they found those timestamps, but they were smudged, but it's like, you couldn't find anyone to corroborate the story or, I mean, did he just have like, what was going on with his defense attorneys? Am I dumb? Am I missing something? Um, maybe, uh, I don't think that you're dumb, but, um, I think maybe there's maybe some context would help clear it up. Um, so it is kind of confusing. I'll be honest, but uh, Hopman's defense attorney was a guy named Ed Riley. And Ed Riley was uh, like 52 at the time of the trial, which has led a lot of people to like describe him as being like over the hill and past his prime uh, <laughs> and stuff, which I don't know. It's like this seems a little insulting, but whatever. Um, he's also alleged was allegedly an alcoholic. Um, and so... There's kind of it's kind of interesting because a lot of the the sentiment seems to be like that Riley didn't mount a very good defense of Hotman. Um, what's interesting is that he became Hotman's defense attorney because somebody somebody paid a newspaper basically decide the newspapers decided they were going to start like a bidding war to get the exclusive story, uh, and so they would pay the attorney to get the exclusive story. So that's how he ended up doing this was because, you know, like the media paid for him to be there. Um, So some people think that he didn't really try that hard. Um, But then there seems to be some other people who think that he actually raised a lot of important points during the trial. Uh, You know, even going so far as to um, saying that the police planted evidence and stuff, saying that in court. Uh, and that at the end of the day, Hotman just kind of got railroaded because this was a really high profile case. The state wanted it wrapped up quickly. They had a good enough connection with him and that also, you know, he was a German immigrant and anti-German sentiment between the world wars was pretty high, uh, you know, because of world war one. So, uh, yeah, it's a real mixed bag. So I guess when you say you're confused, it's fair um, because people seem to be confused about whether or not Ed Riley was doing a good job. But it also seems like they had a lot of problems with witnesses. Uh, yeah. A lot, of, a lot of the Hopman, the defense witnesses didn't uh, pan out or, you know, they didn't they didn't show up or they like fell apart when they got cross examined. Uh, it's very it's very strange. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, it kind of makes you feel like, well, maybe there just weren't, maybe there really weren't any good witnesses. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, obviously I don't know this lawyer, but criminal, like criminal lawyers tend to be pretty competitive and they don't definitely don't like to lose. Yeah. 
Um, even if, you know, I know the, the, it's the fun kind of trope or like the, you know, the movie plot that like they paid off the lawyers or whatever. And I'm sure mm-hmm. it does happen in real life. It does happen. Certain lawyers phone it in. If you're a, you know, a public defender or a public prosecutor and it's <laughs> like, you know, your fucking case, you're going to lose. But I don't know. You actually start talking to any of those, those lawyers. It's like, they're pretty competitive people and they really don't like to lose. Um, even when they lose like in a just sense, like, Oh, the system was rigged against me. It's like, I still don't think they like to lose. And I think they usually like to try and, and win if they can not, not to say that there aren't shitty lawyers who, you know, will, will do that kind of stuff, but sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe he was paid off, but it just it just confused me because I was like, well, none of the witnesses panned out and they wanted to try. It's like, well, if he had an alibi, couldn't you fucking get the alibi? And then, he, you know, he did not murder the kid or at least didn't kidnap the kid. <laughs> we don't know if he didn't murder him. I mean, right. it's pretty fucking sus that this dude was betting on the stock market during the Great Depression. Where did he get that money? Yeah, I mean, right. Like that's not that's not refuted. Well, yeah, that's the that's the thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, on the one hand, it's like that's what police determined uh, at the time is that he took this, you know, that uh, that Haltman took the money, all of it and invested a significant portion in the stock market and lost it all uh, because, (laughs) I mean, obviously, what a stupid thing to do during the Great Depression, especially when you have no. No expertise at investing in things. Um, I mean, it was a much different like environment just in how you would invest anyway at the time. So it's interesting that that's what he would choose to do. But yeah, if he can't buy 80,000 gallons of of frozen orange juice concentrate. (laughs) I mean, what are you doing, buddy? Come on, get that frozen OJ concentrate. You know Uh, where the money is, baby. Come on. The money's at. You got to trade in concentrates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Concentrate. Good shit's at. Concentrate. Um, that's actually a real, uh, isn't that? That's like a real commodity that can be is. Uh, that's like traded. Oh, I'm sure. They're in like, they're like in categories, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that I'm sure that you can trade. I mean, if it exists, you can probably trade in it. Um, you know, bunk funkers, you can trade in um, Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast. Um, I read a thing recently about how you could buy shares in like expensive handbags. Wow. So think so about that. what does that mean? You, you own a portion of an expensive handbag. <laughs> Jesus fuck. But you don't get to use. So how do you, yeah. How do you cash that? Like if the bag, if the bag is sold, you would be entitled to a portion of it that you are a a commensurate portion of the the proceeds that's so weird what a weird thing but hey that's that's how that's how it is you can you can trade stick to frozen orange juice concentrate (laughs) yeah stick with what that's my market (laughs) yeah stick with my market um uh i will say though that the zorn book the cemetery john book you know it it doesn't it doesn't address the the a stock market playing of so there's at least some doubt around that Hopman played the stock market because I think where a lot of people go with this is that 
the prosecution was fabricating a lot of things, you know, just to mm-hmm. make it seem like uh, this all that it was all nicely buttoned up since they didn't have any physical evidence or um, they didn't have any eyewitness testimony that they could go to. So they tried to button up all this circumstantial evidence. Um, so I think some people try to make it seem like that was well, like, Oh, well he spent all this other stuff uh, in the stock stock market. So, Oh, well there's no, it's gone. Uh, so he just had this, this, you know, leftover uh, $14,000 that was at his house. So I don't know. It, it's, there's some what do you think was this, guy, was this guy was this guy actually in the fucking closet writing down phone numbers and shit <laughs> that's so that's either like yeah i can't tell whether that's incriminating or it makes no fucking sense well it's interesting too to me that that his, you don't got a cordless phone in the 1930s right right yeah were cordless phones invent or corded phones sorry the cordless phones wouldn't have been invented until way Much later, later yeah but like in the 1930s, people didn't have like, I don't know. Did they? Uh, I'm big. I'm a big dumb, but like, I don't know. I don't know if people had phones in the 30s. Well, you did know, most people have phones in their houses. You know, it's interesting because because I thought I thought kind of the same thing. I don't and I guess I really don't know. But it's like, obviously, Dr. Condon had a had a phone number. Um, Yeah, I guess it's like there were. They were just regular, like, corded phones okay. that you would have at home. Because then I could maybe see, like, you know, you're listening to or whatever, but why Why is he in the closet jotting down notes? Yeah. You know? Why is that in the closet? Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, And then there's some stuff about the floorboards, you know, like, there's some floorboards missing from his attic, and those were the boards that he maybe allegedly used in the ladder or something, but... Yeah, um, yeah. There was. A, I don't know. This is. It's tough. There's a missing floor. It's a tough one. Missing floorboard in the attic. Uh, the prosecution said that the that obviously this they knew that the wood that was used in the ladder had probably been reclaimed from somewhere else because they could see like nail holes in the in the boards and stuff that didn't that didn't align with anything that had to do with the ladder. So. Mm-hmm. You know, the expert suspected that this had come from somewhere, prob- like like that he ran out of lumber while he was building this, and so just salvaged some from inside of his house. And so then they happened to find this missing floorboard uh, in the attic with the nail holes that matched perfectly. Uh, but of course, that's disputed too. Some people say the police did that, that they planted that piece of evidence, that that was totally falsified just to make the case stronger. I mean, he's a pretty fucking good scapegoat. You've got all time German, you know, all time high. It's like, mm-hmm. this is an American hero. Uh, everybody loves Charles Lindbergh and he's the most famous man in the fucking country. And, you know, you've got the death of a child. I mean, already you're, this is an uphill battle. Yeah. No matter who it is. But then you find somebody who's a German during a time when people hate Germans. Uh, and it's just like, God damn. I mean, just that alone. It's like people would probably be ready to say like, all right, lock them away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, do I, do I absolutely believe that 
a, an immigrant could get railroaded by our justice system and then be executed for their crimes that they m- maybe didn't even commit. Yeah, I 100% believe that that could happen in this country. I mean, <laughs> look at Sacco and Vanzetti. Like, this isn't even the first, that wouldn't even be the first, the only case that's like that. So I definitely think that it's, there's a possibility that he was just a, an immigrant that lacked the wherewithal to really defend himself in this and uh, got, you know, just it, it didn't didn't come out, you know? It's like he maintained his innocence to the end, didn't want to confess to everything, anything at all, uh, and ended up dying, being killed. But I believe it could hmm. happen. This is coming from two big weenie babies, but Charles Lindbergh is kind of a cunt. <laughs> yeah. No, what do you think? Yeah. Yes, no. Yeah, I, uh, but I'm I'm interested to hear how you're going to support that. I don't know. Argument. He just kind of seems like a dick. Oh, yeah. But, hey. But, uh, but hey, I, I mean, hey, he did, he did fucking fly that goddamn plane. You know, I'm like... I'm sitting here like I I mean I obviously knew who Charles Lindbergh was before researching this. And we know his famous cheese. Yeah, we love his Lindberger cheese. It's stinky just like his ideas and and his yeah. Uh it reeks. But um I knew who he was, but it's something that I never really understood is like why was he famous? It's like he flew that plane. Yeah, there wasn't much else going on, Andy. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, I guess, I guess it's like, you ever read fucking Grapes of Wrath? <laughs> this is you fucking drink dry ass titty milk out of some old lady, and it's like you hear about some dude who can fly a plane across the ocean. You're like, oh man, there's hope. <laughs> I mean, I guess this is I never the, read that book. The Roaring Twenties from for you, like things were so good that this is all celebrities had to do. Just fly a plane. I mean, it, it's kind of a big deal. Nobody had done that before. That was like pretty fucking crazy. Yeah. I guess people didn't think that you could do that. Yeah. I mean, there was a, uh, the, the reason that he did it is there was this, uh, there was this competition. Somebody was going to pay like $25,000 to whoever could do it. The Ortega prize, I think it was called. And so he got some financial backers to help him like modify his plane. Um, and that's how he ended up doing it. But apparently there was uh, like a couple of people from Ireland who attempted this before Lindbergh did. And they just disappeared over the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, like they never were found. Uh, Their names were Amelia and Earnhardt. Yeah. <laughs> Two Irish people names. <laughs> That's it. Those are the names. Classic Irish names. Classic. Um, <laughs> scary stuff. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It just, I mean, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm kind of joking when I say he's a cunt, but. Nah, yeah, I don't think um, you have to, I don't think you have to apologize for that sentiment. I think that it's fair. Um, But that's yeah, that I mean, kind of all he did. But then his post, his his life was very strange to me. Because, you know, after after the whole kidnapping thing wraps up, he and his wife, they move to Europe. 
Like he goes to Nazi Germany. He's like well received by the Third Reich. And he inspects like the Luftwaffe and stuff while he's there. <laughs> and like becomes a Nazi sympathizer basically. And is like a white supremacist arguing that uh, the U.S. shouldn't get involved in the in World War II. Uh, but then like after the war, I mean, after Pearl Harbor, um, the, he's like, the president refuses to reinstate his commission as an officer. So he goes as like a civilian consultant to the Pacific theater, but then they just have him fly like 50, he flew like 50 combat missions in the Pacific. Holy shit. And then, uh, like he, while he was there, he like made some modification to the P thirty eight that uh, like increased its fuel efficiency, uh, which gave it even better range than it had before, which was already pretty good. Um, and then, like after, I and at some point he like he helped he worked with somebody and he invented a thing that was like an artificial heart pump. That was like basically the forerunner to the artificial heart. Like this, Jeez. this guy had a bizarre life. Yeah. And then, it, yeah, after the war and he's like, he's in Germany, he's like carrying affairs on while he's still married to his wife with like three women in Germany. And he had like seven more kids and two of the Jeez. women were sisters. Ugh. But he like, it was like very secret they weren't allowed to know who he really was or anything. And then I guess the kids found out like by going through when one of the, one of the sisters died, the kids found out because they found some like papers or something that led them to Charles Lindbergh. Wow. Uh, well, he's an interesting character for sure. And, yeah, but he's uh, a dick. I mean, that's fine. What I'm, I guess what I'm saying is it's not, it's not, I don't know. You're, you're, you're a parent, uh, you know, obviously there are people capable of killing their own children. <laughs> Wait, uh, is that, where you, what do you mean? Are you trying to say that I'm the, I'm, I prove the rule that there you're are Charles Lindbergh. Yes. Yeah, you're Charles, I'm Charles Lindbergh. I'm a Lindbergh. Uh, no, like, I don't know. You, you give that kind of parent perspective where it's like, obviously people do it. People torture and abuse their children in lots of horrible ways. Mm -hmm. Um, but you kind of have that parent's perspective where it might be like, well, you know, I don't know. Is this the type of guy? This guy was a parent. I'm a parent. Is this the type of guy that you think could, pull pull off something weird like this something dastardly i guess not weird yeah i don't know it's a good question you know the uh i do have to say i think that the uh the eugenics angle makes it interesting like the social darwinism thing um but i tend to think that in these situations people who are really into that kind of stuff they they still hold their beliefs, but then they kind of act like it doesn't, like it doesn't apply to them. You know what I mean? Right. Like, oh yeah, my, my, my child was born with a bunch of birth defects, but that has nothing to do with my genetics. Right, right, right. Yeah. I kind of think like, 
he has a lot more to lose than he does to gain by uh, killing his own fucking kid. Yeah. Just just for the sake of, you know, Aryan race bullshit. So what do you think, though, about it being just an accident that he was trying to play a prank and he just dropped <laughs> the baby? To play a fucking prank? Because most people, most people oh, agree man. they think that the baby died from being dropped. Like that the baby died that night. So it was never really kidnapped. Just that, you know, like the ladder broke and the baby fell or maybe the baby falling broke the ladder. Uh, but most people think that the head trauma on the body because of the head trauma on the body that was found. I mean, again, if you think that that's the baby, then it was probably because, you know, the baby. I'm the baby. I'm not the mama. That's what it is. Fuck. I'm the baby. That's our. I'm the baby. That's our yeah. blatant ripoff of dinosaurs. I'm the baby. <laughs> um, but that the baby fell and and cracked its skull uh, that night of the kidnapping and died that night. Hence the like hasty burial. Man, I don't know what to think. It's uh, it's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. This is uh. This is one I've been going I'm going back and forth on, you know? Like yeah. what do I think? I mean, how do you feel about about like some of the other evidence against Hoffman? Like the chisel matched a set that he had. Like it was missing a chisel and the chisel they found at the scene was the one that was missing. Uh mm-hmm. you know, the fact that they He's got a drawing of the fucking ladder. Yeah. That he said it was done by was a child. Was this some kind of like specialty ladder? Well, it was just like home home designed. So it was like designed to be like more compact. So oh. it's kind of like a like a unique, I guess, ladder in that sense. A legendary item. It's not something that you just bought. You know what I mean? It's a wondrous, yeah. wondrous yeah, ladder. The wondrous ladder of kidnapping. I'm pretty sure you could get that in the newest Civ game is the ladder used to steal Charles Lindbergh's baby. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, great you artifact. Get the, you get, yeah, you can get this a great artifact. Help spend, spread your culture all over. You can get uh, Charles Lindbergh. He will uh, he'll be a great person. He'll come and visit your cities, your civilization, and teach you how to fucking fly planes. Yeah. Um, but then I keep coming back to that ladder. That ladder is like, yeah, because it's like they didn't have any prints that matched. Like, first of all, there's something with the prints, the technique that they used to get prints. This is why they didn't get any prints is because of the way the ladder, like, you know, how a person would have like touched the ladder. It just wasn't a good like technique for getting the prints. And so they used this other, you know, they called in uh, Dr. Hudson who used like this European technique and they got prints all over the thing. But it didn't, none of them matched Hotman. Yeah, I mean, how accurate though are, are those fucking prints? Yeah, that's a good point. Because everybody I mean, the and 1930s. their brother was touching it. Yeah. Because, I mean, let's face it, like it doesn't seem like there was good protocol Um on keeping the crime scene like free of contamination. So it kind of no. feels like, you know, even the night of like Lindbergh and his Butler out there, like messing with the ladder and stuff. I mean, it's like probably the whole thing was contaminated. Who knows if you could have gotten a good print anyway, especially when then they called the expert in. it's like, 
probably all the police have touched it and stuff. Hmm. I think it's suspicious. Like he's got, he's got the skills. He's got all this stuff. You know, he doesn't seem like a ringleader type. Yeah. And but I I do think that it's. I don't know. I don't know what to make of the fact that he never confessed. That he wouldn't he wouldn't even say like I was involved. I helped build the ladder. I got the ransom money, but I didn't do the kidnapping, you know, and it's like you would think that somebody in that situation would <laughs> would fess up and rat everybody else out and then it would be done. You know what I'm saying? Right. You would think. Especially when it's like they're gonna put me to death. <laughs> yeah. I think it's uh Look, I think that Bruno Hauptmann is the guy you want uh, on your side if you do ever do anything illegal. Um, <laughs> because clearly, he's willing to take the secrets to his grave. I mean, you know, I guess that's the thing is like, but maybe he was just telling the truth. Maybe Isidore Fish just really did like leave a box of money with him. And he never looked at it until his closet got a leak. And it ruined the box and the bills got all wet. But I don't know. It just seems like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not the fish angle. I don't know. It doesn't, something about it just doesn't like stick for me. Yeah. Something about it seems fishy. <laughs> Good job. You got to the right place. Um, Oh boy, I don't want to even get to verdicts. I don't even know where to, I don't know where to go. Yeah, this is a tough one. I mean, uh, cause you got a lot of angles too. I mean, I'll be honest. Yeah. This is one where like, this is like Baskin Robbins of theories because there's <laughs> like a theory for every person has a slightly different theory about what actually happened. I mean, the mafia, that's a strong one, too. Like, it makes sense. Yeah, the mafia makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, though, I kind of feel like if they... Because Charles Lindbergh probably hated Italians. <laughs> yeah, he probably did, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Although, who knows? He was okay with the Nazis, and yeah. Hitler cozied up to Mussolini, so maybe, maybe Lindbergh could have, too. Um... The mafia makes a lot of sense. Because that's one thing, too, that I have seen brought up is that why would why would somebody like Hoffman go after the biggest celebrity maybe in the whole world at the time? Like, yeah. of all people, like, you easily could have found a less high-profile person who had money, you know? Like, you didn't have to go after Lindbergh. Because it's like if all yeah, and he doesn't even live in New Jersey; he lives in the Bronx. Yeah, he lives in the Bronx, and I, and I know that New Jersey and New York City are like right next to each other, but yeah, yeah, still, yeah, it's yeah, and I mean that's that's another thing that people raise is that how how did Bruno Hoffman even know like where the Lindberghs lived? They had two uh, 
two homes, you know, in the state of New Jersey. Like they had their house in Englewood that was like, that's, you know, right across. That's the other big one. How would people know that Charles Lindbergh and his family would be staying at that house for an extra night? Yeah. Um, basically what Jim Fisher says is that that night Bruno Hotman went to Englewood to kidnap the baby, but then nobody was there. So he went to the other house, hmm. but that's all to me. That just seems like that's, that's just speculation. Like that's building, building the narrative. I don't think that there's anything that, Nothing that I saw, at least, that would say Hopman went to Englewood, didn't find anybody, and so then he went out to Hopewell and found them there. But um, Hopman did did have the ransom money and was playing the stocks, or is this all also speculation? Well, I mean... The police said that he was. Okay. That's all I... Well, what What did the lawyers say? Well, there's... The the speculation is that maybe he didn't, you know, that the, okay. that the money was distributed, like that he had only a third of it, that all, all they found on him was all that he had. And not that he, you know... That he didn't uh that he didn't actually play the the stock market. But I don't know. I don't and you know, I don't know what that's based on other than just Yeah. I think that everybody's question I think now people just question everything about <laughs> what evidence was brought up at the trial. Like that it all could be suspicious. Um yeah, and Charles Lindbergh blowing off a speech because he forgot about it. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe he forgot about it because he had to go play a sick fucking prank on his wife by kidnapping his own baby. <laughs> what a what a great prank, too. You should play that prank. I think I'm going to because, I mean, I'm really inspired by that. Lock your, kid in, <laughs> lock your infant in a closet and then tell your wife that he got kidnapped. That is hilarious. It was the trash closet too. Put his yeah. put his baby in the trash and then told his wife the kid got kidnapped. Jesus Christ. Dude's an absolute Classic Lindbergh. Absolute Chad. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> um Yeah, I mean, I don't know, Andy. Do we want to get to verdicts here? Because I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we almost have to get into verdicts a little bit because I think that it's just going that direction. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's hard to yeah. it's hard to it's hard to say anything else without like getting to that point where you're talking about which thing you think is more plausible than the other mm-hmm. thing. Oh my God! How are we going to do a verdict on this one? Oof. Uh, I guess maybe you should give the one you think is the most plausible, and how much? Mm. Yeah. And then I don't know. I guess you can break it down. 
All right. Buy I'm, the rest if you want. There's so many. I'm. I think I'm. I think I like that. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna make a verdict on that they got it right. That Hoffman was guilty. Hoffman yeah. was the guy. Uh, then I'm gonna pick my favorite alternative possibility. Okay. And rate that plausibility. And then. Yeah, you know what? That's fine. Uh, okay. <laughs> sure. We'll see what else. we'll see what comes up out of this. Uh, oh God. So l- let me say, let me do first uh, that Hoffman was guilty and that they got it right in the 1930s. Whew. On the bunk on the patented bunker scale of plausibility. I'm going to give that one plausible plus. Wow. That they got it right because, all right, I'm going to reason this out is because there does seem to be a fair amount of circumstantial evidence and Hoffman made multiple appeals uh, even his wife, you know, continued to like press f- for his exoneration even after he was executed. And none of that's come to anything now. I mean, it's fair to argue that maybe that's because nobody, no, no authorities want it to go that direction because they want to look like they did it right. And it was such a high profile thing. But I think you got to consider it at least that maybe it's because there wasn't a big like scandalous way it was handled. Um, So I'm going to give that plausible plus. I think that my most plausible um, alternative hypothesis, uh, which is that hmm, this is tough. Yeah, it is. Like, part of me wants to say that Lindbergh shipped the baby away. And this was a ruse. Lindbergh shipped the baby away. I think it's just because I, like, think that there's more intrigue in that story. But I don't think that I actually believe it all that much. Yeah, they just happened to find another dead kid's body. Yeah, like that they killed another infant to, like, cover it up. It's kind of crazy. Or just, yeah, like they happen to find another, like, it, you know, yeah, it's. And then it's like he gave. Took advantage. I, I do think that that is the baby's body. Okay. I think the baby's dead. Yeah. I mean, it kind of, it lines up, right? Like the baby disappeared. The autopsy said it would, had, had the baby, that the body had been dead for the same amount of time the baby had been gone. Yeah. Um. Oh man, most probable other. Yeah, you know what? I think I got to go just straight that it was maybe like a mafia thing, like an organized crime. <laughs> okay. And I'm going to give that What's up? I'm give that plausible, like right down the middle. Um Yeah. Cuz I guess Hopman 
having all that money doesn't make a lot of sense if it's if it's mafia, right? Like I'm kind of right. I'm kind of on the fence about the Zorn the Cemetery John thing. Like it's a good story. I think that it makes sense. Wow. But we know why you're upset with that. Well, yeah, yeah, that's why I won't pick it cuz they stole my thing. Uh But I don't know, I just I can't get over that that like the stock market thing. Right. This guy was allegedly playing the stock market during the fucking Great Depression. Yeah. So it's like it's like, what are you doing, buddy? You're a carpenter. How do you uh Yeah. I mean it, it just <laughs> How do you make enough to play the stock market? The stock you market. Know? The stock market. Um God damn that that market was naked as hell. It was stark market naked. <laughs> oh yes, they call that market the streak. Look at it, look at it. Um <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, just because organized crime seems like the path of least resistance. For one of these things. Yes. And it's yeah. like, that would be a way for, I, I'm not sure that Hotman fits into that. So how did he get the money? I don't know. Maybe he was a go between. Um, but it's kind of like, if you get arrested for something, you're going to rat out the mafia, right? Like to get life in prison instead of the electric chair. Uh, yeah, I guess. I don't know. The mafia is like, listen, you fucking squeal, ah, yeah. kill your wife and your kid and your family and all your everyone you ever loved yeah that's true so i don't know maybe he was working for the mob i don't know give it plausible um here's i'm going to answer this question too it's not plausibility but do i think that this is something that bears a fresh look like that it could be that the trial could be reinvestigated to make sure that it was done properly I mean, in some cases, it's a moot point because everybody's dead at this point. Um, but I still think it would be nice to know if there was actual justice served or if it was just a sham. Mm-hmm. So I'd say, why not reinvestigate? I mean, it would be tough. You wouldn't have any evidence. Yeah, it would be really hard. Because <laughs> I, it's like, and uh, how would you prove, you know, now that the police faked yeah. stuff? I mean. Maybe maybe that's maybe I'm too stupid to realize, but maybe that's why you wouldn't do something like that. It's because it's just worthless. You're just a big dumb, fucking dead Lindbergh baby. <laughs> do you like dead baby jokes? Um, did the Lindbergh baby invent dead baby jokes? Yeah, um, probably. I'm not a huge fan of them. I never really liked them. Nah, I think it's always they're just kind of gross out humor yeah yeah it's not not for me not really like i mean a couple of them are kind of clever where it's like there's a twist like it's like oh you know it's dead babies it's like (laughs) but after a while it's just kind of like all right you're just kind of being edgy for the sake of being edgy yeah you know yeah totally agree with that like you just want to like you know talk about a dead baby because it's like oh you're not supposed to talk about it which I mean I know that's funny coming from us but uh, (laughs) I don't know not my cup of tea and you know I feel like it's always I mean definitely I shouldn't say something like this but if you know somebody who's into dead baby jokes and they're like oh you want to hear one and you go okay like buckle up because you're probably going to hear about 50 of them right like (laughs) 
<laughs> if a person's like into it, they like know about a thousand of them, and they're all yeah, kind of the same. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh uh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that is a bunch of dead babies in a blender. Yeah, You're right. Yeah, yeah, good point. Good point. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Anyway, here's your meal and your change, sir. All right, we'll see. <laughs> that's how all my conversations end. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> please get out of our store. Oh, boy. Hey, you uh, like jokes yeah, about I mean, horse even, semen? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. Like, I guess we kind of appreciate that aristocrats joke. But, like, is that my favorite fucking joke? Like, yeah. do I just love the aristocrats? Like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's not a good example because the aristocrats... It's funny because of just like how insanely over the top you can make it. Right. And like and the way it ends, yeah, is so stupid that it's it's funny. Yeah. Uh whereas, you know, I think dead baby jokes always kind of follow the same kind of format. I don't know. They were they were my cup of tea back when I was 10 years old and people were looking up Dead baby jokes on board.com, okay? <laughs> There's a blast from the past. Board.com. Jeez, hadn't thought about that for a long time. Yeah, now you're going to go look it up? Yeah, let me go see what's happening out there at board.com. <laughs> <laughs> now sponsoring this podcast. Board.com, sponsored by Ebombs World, <laughs> Albino Black Sheep, and Board.com. <laughs> we got all your favorite early 2000s websites. Newgrounds.com. <laughs> Alta Vista. Uh, our preferred Alta search Vista. engine. That's right. Bunk Funkers. Use promo code BUNK to get, uh, well, I don't know. I guess it's free, but. <laughs> Use the promo Just, code BUNK to uh, have an envelope of uh, search results mailed to your house. <laughs> so convenient. <laughs> Oh, God, I guess it's my turn. Yeah, quit stalling. Get to your verdict. Fuck. <laughs> um, I don't think I don't think Hopman acted alone, but I have no evidence to prove that, and I have no idea why this guy wouldn't rat out the other people involved. I, I have a hard time believing that this dude... I don't. I just have a hard time believing that this guy did this entire thing alone. But I guess him acting alone would make more sense with, I guess, what maybe played out was that this guy was a poor German immigrant working as a carpenter. Um, he knows about Charles Lindbergh. He has somewhat of a criminal past in Germany, mm-hmm. right? That's 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 true. Or is that another fabricated thing? Wait, which part fabricated? That he has a criminal past in Germany. No, that had, no, that part committed. is true. He did he he uh he and a friend robbed uh, a couple of women of their groceries and he spent time in prison in Germany for that. Okay. So he did have a criminal past. That's that's legitimate. All right. So he is capable of doing the wrong thing. Mhm. Yeah. 
He's done it in the past. Yeah. So maybe he thinks, all right, this will be easy. I'll take the baby. Nobody knows. I, and I'll get the ransom money. It'll be easy. So he builds a ladder. He puts the ladder up on the fucking nursery. Goes up there. Steals the baby. Drops the baby. Kills the baby. Breaks the ladder. Mm-hmm. Buries the baby hastily. And continues with the ransom money, knowing full well that he does not have this baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that the proper events? You know, why would this guy never confess? Why would he never confess and save his life? I don't know. Some some people truly never believe. I don't know. People compartmentalize things. And uh, I don't know. People do weird stuff. I mean... Ted Bundy said he was innocent for, you know, Charles Manson believed he was innocent. And there's people out there that believe Charles Manson was innocent. Well, and that's a topic in and of itself. Yeah, that's that's a whole other thing. Um, There's people who wrote to Charles Manson every single day while he was in prison and they will defend him. Yeah. Even to this day. And uh, yeah, I still write every day. Yeah, you do. Even though he's dead. <laughs> yeah, I still write him. <laughs> I just eat the letters now instead of mailing them. Because now he lives inside me. Okay. Oh, boy. The fuckers. Uh, yeah, boy. Oh, boy. I don't know. Why would this guy, if he did act alone, never say anything? But if he had help, why wouldn't he rat them out? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I cannot put my finger on it. I can't figure it out. Yeah. I mean, what I think is more plausible is just that he, I don't know, maybe he's a prideful person and he just did not want to bring that shame to his wife, to his name, to whatever. I don't know. I don't know. I can't figure it out. Maybe it isn't. Maybe he is truly innocent. We got it wrong. Maybe he came to this country like so many other immigrants to start a new life. Does it matter to you that he immigrated illegally also? Uh, that he stowed away in a ship, he got turned away at the border and then hmm. stowed away on a different ship and then got in. How did he get his wife? When did he meet his wife? Was his wife American? Um, no. She's also German, but I think that, uh, I think that they met here in the U.S. Oh. If I've got my, if I've got huh. my facts straight on Bruno Hopman's past. I don't, I don't know. I just, what I don't understand is why he wouldn't, uh, I don't know. Maybe he thought he could get out of it. If he just kept saying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. He tried to appeal it a million different times, but. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll help you a little bit think through this because Jim Fisher kind of addresses this on his website. Um, he says that he felt that he, he believes that Hopman thought that the New Jersey governor was going to commute his sentence and either give him life in prison or you know whatever that something was going to happen from the governor and so Hopman maintained his innocence so that he never had to like so that it, that would not go away the possibility of that wouldn't go away and then he just waited too long and then 
by that point there was nothing anybody could do to stop the execution like it went past whatever the you know the timing is to where the governor can stop it so then he was executed hmm. because uh you know he appealed a, a lot of times and and uh he was visited in prison by the governor who gave him like a 30 day stay on the execution uh because he was kind of i it seems like the governor thought that he deserved more like a legal process that the governor felt like something wasn't right but ultimately he never he never commuted the sentence he never like called off the execution so it happened but jim fisher thinks that it's just that hotman was waiting for that and so he he just kept saying he was innocent in the in the hopes that that would happen yeah but you would think even when he is like in that fucking chair he would say like all right all right all right i'll confess like it's maybe they just don't listen at that point maybe it's just like a moot point at that point you know (laughs) yeah it's probably like you gotta call the governor and he's like already strapped to the chair and stuff (laughs) it's like okay well yeah (laughs) no i can't cordless phones haven't been invented yet (laughs) yeah yeah i'm sure it's one of those things where at the time it's like i mean it's not hard for me to believe that the guys do electrocuting people to death would be like yeah 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 whatever (laughs) like right like everybody says they didn't you know everybody tries to confess yeah and i mean this is the 1930s during the great depression i mean people were probably way more like thick-skinned and just like battle-hardened than you know other eras yeah um they probably would have been like, whatever, buddy. I'm making my fucking 50 cents a day. <laughs> yeah. Click. Buzz. So I'm going to say for Hopman being involved in some capacity, I can't, I can't extrapolate whether he was alone. I can't imagine that he would do that alone, but mm-hmm. it seems like you'd have to have at least somebody helping you. But I'm going to say plausible plus and a half. Plausible plus and a half. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. Now... Charles Lindbergh doing some stupid shit or fucking killing the kid himself or it was an accident. He tried to cover it up. I'm going to say plausible. I'm going to do the bullshit and say (laughs) straight down the middle. I can't figure it out, but you know, he took over the whole investigation. Did he do that because he's Charles Lindbergh and he's kind of an asshole or did he do that because yeah, he was trying to steer it a certain way. It is bullshit that only him and fucking Jaffsy went to go meet this guy. That makes no fucking sense. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you have at least some kind of undercover fucking police guy or anything? Yeah. There to help, you know, an extra pair of eyes and ears to help figure out who <laughs> the fuck they're meeting. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's that is so sus. Yeah, that's the story is that that Schwarzkopf really wanted them to like have police presence there so that they could trap whoever they were meeting and, and apprehend them. But of course, like Lindbergh said no, because he was afraid that that would endanger the life of his child. So he insisted that it was just him and Jaffsey that went to meet the guy. 
Oh, boy. Um, yeah, I mean, that doesn't... I don't look favorably on that. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I understand the motive. I understand that, like, he doesn't want to endanger his kid, but it's like... It's like they already warned you, though, to not do this, and you did the exact thing. Like, immediately you did the thing they warned you not to do. So how, why are you so concerned now? Right. Like, after and... they already told you not to. I don't know. It's also kind of like... They really want the ransom money. I don't think that. I don't know. Maybe this is naive as well, but like. If the criminals wanted to kill your child, they probably would have killed it. Don't you think like. If they had the opportunity to kill the child, they would do. If they had the opportunity to kill, slay the child, they would slay it. <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying it like that. <laughs> they would. Thank you. Decimate the child. Thank you, Winston. <laughs> Um, we will kill the children in the beaches. <laughs> <laughs> we will kill them in the fields. <laughs> if if they had the opportunity to kill the children, I'm trying to do like a Werner Herzog, and it did not work. Mm, yeah, I was really confused about what that was. That was more confusing. Okay, that was more confusing than what I my verdict on this on this topic. I'm not even gonna try. I did it once. I'm gonna, you know, I. I could do it. I, you just need to warm up and practice it. Yeah. I need to hear his voice before I can do it. Anyway. Uh, I mean, they, they kind of already have your kid. Like they want the money. So I think that this kid was dead from the get go. Like, I think something happened. What I think is either Hotman and co bungled this and killed the kid or Lindbergh killed the kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The mafia is not going to kill the kid. The mafia, I think, know how to do this kind of thing. I don't think they would bungle something mm, like that's this. That's a good point. That much. They want to. They want to. Uh, they want to abduct the baby, send it back, and then abduct it again later for, for additional ransom money. Probably. Yeah. Probably just keep abducting. That's kind of a good it. point. I mean, that's, you know, they would like rob trucks and do. It. The mafia kind of wants to like. The mafia wants to set up a business. Yeah. They don't want to like do petty crime. They want to like be like, all right, we'll cut you in. At least smart big crime families do this. Right, they right. they go like, all right, you know, like like the mafia. One of the big things in like uh, Goodfellas and shit is like. When you murder somebody, it's a big deal because it's like you have to pay for that. And also, you don't usually you don't want to like be murdering people because that brings police attention. That's how you get caught. Mm-hmm, true. Because like it's like you know a murder can be placed on somebody, and then suddenly you're a liability. So you know spoilers, obviously for Goodfellas, when Joe Pesci's character goes and murders the guy in the fucking club where they're doing the illegal activity, mm-hmm. like their 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 bar where all the shit goes down. That's a big fucking deal because obviously one is he murdered a rival crime family. And you kind of have these people who are off limits in these crime families. Yeah. There's there's like this weird code of ethics or code of honor amongst them where it's like, all right, well, you know, these are my untouchables. You don't touch them. I don't touch yours. You know what I'm saying? So I don't think that like the mafia would sit there like and bring all that attention on themselves and go fucking like murder the most famous man in America's child. Right. And then have their whole operation get exposed. I mean, <laughs> yeah. if anything, they would like 
work with Charles Leonard. We're going to be like, listen, we're going to stage a kidnapping. We're going to blame it on this dumb German guy. Uh, and that's how we're going to make money. We're going to take a cut of the ransom. You're going to take a cut of the ransom. And then we'll go have some fucking pork rolls. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what everybody in this story really wanted to do the whole time. So I'm actually going to give Charles Lindbergh and the mafia both. What? What's I need to. What? You need the scale. I need to look at the scale. Yeah, I'll look here. I need to look at the fucking scale. I look at the scale every time we have a verdict. It's just. I can't do it without looking at it. I don't remember what's there. I feel like you. Okay. I feel like you're going to be in the red on this. No, no, I'm going plausible plus. Well, okay. All right. So it's I'm still misjudged. less than just Hotman? Yeah. You don't know me, Andy. Yeah, clearly, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> but it's still, I'm giving it more than just plausible. I'm actually changing it. So I'm saying Lindbergh and the Mafia. And then maybe like something happened where it got bungled or the kid died in some way. And I don't know. I definitely, I do think that. I do think that the it got bungled somehow and this, this child died. Um, because yeah, I mean, it just, why would you do, why would you, I mean, why you would, you would steal the most famous person in America's fucking kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, pick the second most famous person in America's kid. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Totally agree. <laughs> you know, anyway, bunk fuckers, speaking of the most second famous person, kid in america um those were our verdicts i mean eventually we got yeah, to them i mean you know uh bunk funkers honestly would love to know what you think of this one yeah because uh, ian he, ian the alleged pro baby kidnapping person i mean we don't know we don't know uh i mean no matter let's hear what he has to say i mean as we know as we all we can surmise right now is that we don't know where Ian's going to be on plausibility, but he's definitely going to agree with the outcome. <laughs> yeah. That baby was kidnapped. Was gonna... Yep. <laughs> Nothing of value was lost. Yeah. <laughs> Look, everything turned out the way it should have. <laughs> anyway, bug bookers, those were our verdicts. Let us know what you think. Use the hashtag. I think it's got to be I'm the Lindbergh baby. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, I mean, yeah. Use the hashtag I'm the Lindbergh baby. And let us know what you think. Email us, mrbunkerpod at gmail.com. Tweet or Instagram us at mrbunkerpod for both of those handles. Mm -hmm. Consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com. <laughs> Just think about it. Mm. Oh, God. That's one way to make sure we never yeah. get any supporters. Uh, no, Patreon.com slash Mr. Bunker Pod. There's a lot of fun perks at various levels, but hey, five bucks a month. Five bucks a month. That's only a little bit more than... Isidore Fish's rent in 1930s America. I mean, just a little bit more. So look, this is a bargain. This is a bargain. You could, I mean, this is just a little bit more than a whole room, um, a whole apartment. Uh, for $5 a month, you get an extra podcast episode every month of our brand new Patreon-only show, Andy and Art Debunked. 
you also get access to the Bunker Discord channel where you can chat with Andy and I and other bunk funkers from across the world. You can, uh, there's some other, you get behind the scenes perks. Yeah. Uh, we send out little sneak peeks of future episodes. Um, we, there's, 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 there's lots of fun stuff, but, um, consider it if you have the means and you want to support the show, it would really help us out. And we obviously would greatly appreciate it. Um, poof. What an episode, Andy. Wow. Yeah. This was a, this one's a doozy. Yeah, I did not feel, uh, I did not feel like I was going to be stumped by this one this much. I, but I was, stumped. I have to agree with you. I kind of thought, uh, initially we started looking into this. I was kind of like, okay, I get the, I get the gist of this. Like seems cut and dry. I can see why there's some questions here. But I was left feeling much more conflicted at the end than I thought I was going to be. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I don't, I I don't know what to say other than what I already said. You're the Lindbergh baby. I mean, come fucking message. We would love to interview you for the goo goo gaga. (laughs) Goo goo gaga. Uh, we speak baby. We're both fluent in baby. So <laughs> both big I mean, we can only assume that the Lindbergh baby did not grow up, even if still alive, <laughs> uh, has remained yes. a baby for the last 80 years. Yeah, it, it definitely would not be an 80 year old adult at this point. No. Uh, it would be a tiny baby still encased in encapsulated in that baby babiness. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if it's it's the classic philosophical argument. If Ian Hamilton kidnaps a baby, does the baby continue to grow? <laughs> the answer is no. Baby stays a baby. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Schrodinger's cat. This is Lindbergh's baby. <laughs> All of us are a baby. And also an 80-year-old man simultaneously. <laughs> oh, God. Well... That was uh, that was our episode, and uh, for not the titular Mister Bunker, but for my uh, cognizable, poof, I almost butchered that one, but I think I got through it. Cognizable co-host, okay, yeah, all right, co-host Andy Hart. I'm Art Stone, saying that was the whole enchilada. <laughs> It was an airplane. (laughs) Okay. Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold indifference. 
All that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it.